Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, sponsored by the IBCA. We are a global podcast that shares the passion for the coaching profession. You will hear the stories of coaches from all around the world. We are covering the profession in-game, outside of the game, and anything in between. As always, thank you for listening. We look forward to sharing the coaches' stories with you. So, Coach, we start everything with the opening tip. Um, tell us just a little bit about yourself, you know, where you've been, where you've gone and where you've been, where you came from. And then, you know, give our listeners, I'm, I'm sure most coaches, especially in Illinois, are familiar with you. But give us a little bit about, you know, bowling book basketball and maybe what you guys got coming up this year and how things are going. Yeah, first off, thanks for having me on, you guys. It's it's a pleasure to be on here with with you on the after the timeout pod Um you know, I'm originally from Iowa. I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Uh, I played for a legendary high school coach, Jerry Slykus, who we may or may not get into more of, about him here later on uh, today, depending on where, where things go. And so I graduated from Cedar Falls High School in Iowa, uh, made my way out here after graduating from the University of Northern Iowa. Um, I was the head men's basketball coach at McHenry County College in Crystal Lake for three seasons. And then after that, I worked at the Chicago Bulls Training Academy as the manager of operations there for seven or eight years. Uh, and then I believe in 2007, I became the head coach at Bolingbrook High School, and I've been there ever since. Um, you know, we've we've had a fair amount of success there, uh, mostly because of our players and despite the coaching that, that happens at Bolingbrook High School. So uh, we've been very, very fortunate to to have some really quality players uh, through our program. I think currently we have uh, seven guys playing Division One basketball at this point. Uh, and so, you know, we've had a, a level of success uh, in large part because of the culture we've been able to build, and, but mostly because of the players that have, that have come through the program. So, uh, you know, this year, you know, we hope to continue that success, but each year is different and, and each year brings new challenges. So, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a good season for us. Hopefully uh, we just want to get to work and, and see where it goes from there. So coach, you, uh, you, I don't know if this is the, the unique, uh, the uniqueness or the, uh, uh, the punishment of being our hundredth guest. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Todd and I wanted to just thank uh, all of our all of our listeners and all of our guests uh, for doing this with us for 100 episodes. So with you, we're actually going to go uh, kind of back and forth. For those listeners that don't know, uh, Coach kind of does something unique both on offense and defense. So as the uh, episode kind of goes back and forth, you'll you'll kind of hear myself kind of talk about some offensive focus and Todd some defensive focus. So um, we wanted to focus with you to start on the kind of implementing a fast pace offense um you know for the listeners that have heard me for the last 100 episodes they know I like to play fast as well um but I kind of want to start maybe with that bottom like getting your players conditioned um kind of defining what shots you want um kind of how much rain you give them so kind of just that bottom of you know playing fast and and shooting fast and and being in condition so kind of just take us through that base foundation yeah, well, let me just start by saying this is just how we do it. I don't 
proclaim that everybody should try to do this or that it would work great for everyone. I think it's presumptuous of a guy like me who's a, you know, a a little old high school coach to try to tell everybody how they should be doing things. I'm just going to speak to how we do things. And if hopefully people get glimpses of that and then can take bits and pieces of of what they learn here uh, and then add it to their coaching philosophies. And so I think anytime that you're, you know, listening to another coach, you want information that's going to help you. And then additionally, you want confirmation, right, that you're doing things that are are working, that are best practices that maybe some of the top coaches or the top programs are doing. So hopefully, uh, you know, at the end of this, your listeners can get information and confirmation that that what they're doing is is, you know, best practice in in the game of basketball. And I think offensively, we ask ourselves two questions. Why do we play fast? And then what which is an easy question to answer how we do it is much, much harder. So, uh, you know, the why is easy uh, and that's comes down to some simple, simple reasons. One, it creates more possessions. So, uh, coach, if I'm playing you and it's it's a normal game, you get a possession and I get a possession, then you get a possession and I get a possession. And theoretically, we get the same number of possessions we want our possessions to be more than yours. So that's the the number one thing is that it creates more possessions. And then that gets into a little bit of the defense, but it all kind of plays together as one. Um, we It also allows us to be more efficient with our possessions, meaning that we think when we play fast, we get better and high percentage, more high percentage shots than if we play slower. In other words, if we allow you to set up on defense, um, the the chances of us getting a high percentage shots are much lower. Uh, and that's just what we, we believe. Number three, it wears out our opponents. So, you know, a lot of times our games are relatively even in the first quarter. And then sometime in the second or the third quarter, we make a run of a 10-0 or 17-4 or something like that. And then once we get there, then we feel like we have control of the game. So we really feel like it wears out our opponents. Um, we also feel like it's very hard to prepare for. It's very hard to prepare for by our opponents. Um, so you can't really um, prepare for us. You can try to get all five of your guys back, or you can try to guard us in transition, but it's really, really hard until you see it right in front of you to prepare for it. And then I think lastly, it's really fun to play like this. And so uh, our players like it, but with that comes a little bit of responsibility as well, right? So you can't just say you're going to play fast. And then on top of that, I think an overlying piece of our offense, especially, and I say this at clinics, I'm going to the Iowa uh, Basketball Coaches Association Clinic to speak here in a couple of weeks. And one of the things that's really key for us and that I think is really important is that your mindset is more important than your skill set. A lot of times I hear coaches say to me, well, my kids aren't skilled enough to play fast. Well, my retort to that is that your mindset is much more important than your skill set. And if you wait for your kids' skills to be able to play fast, you're never going to be able to play fast. And so uh, another question I get a lot is, if you didn't have a talented team, would you still play fast? And the answer to that is yes, I would play even faster 
because if I don't have a talented team and I'm playing five on five, I have no chance of winning that none. But if I can get you five on four or I can get you four on three, then I have a chance of scoring. So the whole thing about, well, you have talented teams, so it's easy for you to play fast. I, I completely disagree with that. If I didn't have a talented team, I would play even faster. And then uh, the other thing that I mentioned before is that the mindset is always more important than your skill set. So our, our kids have been conditioned to play fast. And certainly when we, when you take that away from us, we have much more difficulty scoring. And so, you know, we know that it works and that's why we do it. All right. So I want to, before I even get into that kind of nuts and bolts of your defense, yeah. Um, you mentioned, you, you know, you played for a legendary coach and, and you've had all these experience, Bull Sox. And um, so I wanted to to kind of talk with you of how you came about developing your defensive philosophy. Right. Yeah. Like you said, I don't think anybody like just creates it and makes it up. Right. At this yeah. point, you're, you're taking someone from something and adding it to, to make it your own. So, you know, before we get into the nuts and bolts, how did you develop that your defensive? Yeah. Philosophy? Well, first off, let me just say on both ends of the floor. I am the most average of intellect coaches that you're ever going to talk to. So anything that we do, I either saw or studied or stole from somebody else. And, and when I say steal, I, di I just mean we use it. And obviously we tweak it to our advantage and tweak it to the personnel that we have. But that would be true on offense and defense. And so the man left defense came about primarily because I wanted to play faster on offense and so, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of teams play pack line, a lot of teams want to keep it out of the lane and, and do all that. But then we ran into teams because we play so fast, they didn't want to give us the ball. So they were holding the ball for 30 seconds, 40 seconds, screening us. And, you know, we would eventually break down and then they would score a layup. Then we would get the ball back dribble it up as fast as we can or pass it up and shoot a shot because we, that's what we do. And then they would take the ball back and then they would hold it for another 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and we would have to defend again. So I was first frustrated that we were playing defense so long, uh, which, which also you could say, well, we're going to get the shot clock, which I hope we are, but that's for another show. So anyway, six or seven years ago, I started studying um, the traditional lock left defense or force everything left. And Tyler Costin was running kind of a uh, lock left situation. And then a couple coaches in Canada were running this force left thing that I heard about. So I really just started to study what they were doing and why they were doing it. And the man left thing kind of came as a collaboration of all of the information that I studied, listened to, guys that I talked to, film that I watched, all of that. So our man left is a little bit different than Tyler's lock left. It's a little bit different than those guys in Canada who are running it um, at the college level. So it's just tweaked to the high school level and what we like to do at Bolingbrook. So the man left kind of started because I, I was tired of playing defense for so long. And teams kind of got on to what we were doing on offense. And so they would just hold or yeah, what we were doing on offense. So they would just hold the ball on us when they had it. And so, you know, we really wanted to speed that whole thing up. So 
the man left really started because of how we play on offense and how we want to play on offense. And so now man left is one of our defenses. A lot of times it's not even our primary uh, a defense now, just if, if we're having issues speeding the tempo up, if we're having issues getting the tempo where we want it. Um, and particularly in end of game, end of quarter situations, we'll run man left because it completely uh, disrupts what teams like to do. So that was kind of the onus of the man left. And it's funny, four or five years ago, I would get asked to speak at clinics and everybody was like, uh, getting comfortable playing at an uncomfortable pace. That's what we want you to talk about. Now, the last four or five clinics I've done, including the one I'm going to do in Iowa, it's all on man left, man left, man left. So it's funny how we used to be known kind of for the playing, getting comfortable playing at an uncomfortable pace because we scored a lot. Now we're becoming known more for the man left defense. So um, it kind of just e evolves uh, and kind of evolved like that. All right. So now let's get into your, your nuts and bolts. Uh, what are yeah. some of your base concepts, uh, whether you're using checkpoints, uh, your base yeah. teaching points, kind of, kind of your rotations, things like that. Yeah. So what we do that's a little bit different. Well, first off, let me back up and tell you that shots that we don't want. That's the number one thing. And so our kids understand that these are the shots we don't want them to take, meaning our opponent. And they are in this order uh, as well. Number one is right-handed layups. Right-handed layup is a complete no-no uh, against us when we're on defense. Obviously, do teams get right-handed layups? Absolutely, they do. Um, the, second, the second thing is breakaway or fast break layups. Uh, so we don't want to give up anything in transition. The third one is an uncontested three, really anywhere on the floor. But an uncontested three is unacceptable for us. And then the fourth thing we like to take away and man left will do this no matter what offense you're going against is what the other team likes to do best. And so those are the four things we want to take away from, from other teams. So right-handed layup, fast break or uncontested layups, uncontested three point shots, and then what the other team likes to do best. And with all the analytics and all of those things uh, that we have now, uh, what the other team likes to do best is easy to figure out. It's easy to find. And usually it comes down to just one player because one player is scoring a lot of the other team's points. So um, those are the things we like to do. So where, where we've evolved with uh, our man left is this. We split the court into thirds. And so as the other team is coming at us, you know, the right side of the court, is the right side as the other team is is coming to us their right side so uh we guard differently in each third of the of the floor so the most simplistic way i can describe it is this theoretically the the opponent's going to bring it down the middle of the floor or something like that we are going to deny everything to the right and we are going to allow every pass to the left so theoretically to the left, we're playing pack line and to the right, we're playing denial. Okay. And, and once the ball gets to the left third, then it's over. We just jam it over there, keep it over there and really want them to shoot it on, in a timely basis. So when we're running man left, our goal 
so to speak, is that the other team shoots it within 10 seconds of that possession. Now, if for some reason they get it to the right, people ask me this, well, how do you guard that? Well, if you are guarding the ball to the right on the right side of the floor, you are kind of hedging to the left, making them dribble it to the left, and you're allowing one pass away to the middle, and you are certainly allowing two passes away to skip all the way to the left. And so we've found that teams make the easiest pass. You hear coaches say this all the time. Just make the easiest pass. Just enter it to where it's open. Great. That's perfect. Because guess who's going to be open? The guy standing to the left. And so a lot of our defensive uh, principles are how are we guarding pin downs to the right compared to how are we guarding pin downs to the left, for example. And so, you know, we guard differently on each third of the floor. And so some coaches are like, well, that's really hard. It's not hard at all because teams will voluntarily pass it over to the left and then we jam it over there and we keep it over there. And so teams get it to the left on their own. We've tweaked that from where we started. When we first started, we wanted it on the left side before it even got over half court. And what we found, we obviously play in the biggest class of basketball in Illinois. So we're playing against really, really good players. Teams that had it, that had a good ball handler, were getting it to the left side and then snaking it back to the right on the dribble. And we had no help to the right because everybody was denying, right? So when they snaked it back to the right, we were in trouble. So now we just play straight up, so to speak, in the middle third. We deny to the right and we just allow it to get to the left. And then once it gets there, we enact the man left principles. Okay. So that is an enormous adjustment from where we were when we first started. And when I studied all these other guys that were doing lock left, they wanted it to the left side or the left third, you know, by half court or by the volleyball line. We've totally taken that out. We don't care where it comes over now. We just will wait till it gets to the left on its own. And it'll get there. Believe me, it'll get there on its own because kids don't want to do anything that's hard. And they've been taught since they were little kids, just pass to the open guy, make the easiest pass. So we make everything going to the left easy and we make everything going to the right hard. And then when it gets to the left, we kind of jam it over there. So that's a simplistic kind of version of what we do. All right. So now let's talk about personnel. You know, uh, you, you talk with Costa, we talked with him and you got some, I guess, positional skills and traits. Are yep. you looking for, you know, maybe a, a, a post that's that's bigger, that's going to defend the rim? Are you looking for certain skills and traits with your positions or who's guarding who, whether that be the best player, whether it be yeah. post, things like that? Well, in a perfect world, everybody's going to have to guard in all three of the quadrants. I say quadrants, but all three of the thirds uh, of the floor. So they're going to have to know that. And we have simple rules on uh, on each third. If you're in the middle third, you simply cannot get beat off the dribble, period. That's it. You cannot get beat off the dribble, but you can also not allow your guy to survey and just stand there and do whatever he wants with the ball. And so that's pretty easy to do, and that's pretty easy for kids to understand. Then when you close out on the left third of the floor, we're closing out, taking away two things, and we're fighting for the third. So there's three things a person can do 
when they catch the ball. They can drive it to the right, they can drive it to the left, or they can shoot it, okay? So we're taking away the drive to the right, and we're taking away the shot. So when you close out on the left-hand third of the floor, the only thing that is is successful for us on a closeout on the left third is if the guy decks it going to the left. That's a good closeout on the left third. And other than that, it's a bad closeout if anything else happens. Other than him decking it to the left, that's what's going to happen. So to get back to your question about personnel, you can almost start the man left like a zone and put your defenders wherever you want them. You know, theoretically, you could put your best denial defender on the right side of the floor and he just guards the first person to the right. Put your best on ball defender um, that's going to keep the guy from penetrating in the middle. And then the guy that's guarding the first pass to the left is a guy that would take away the right handed dribble, the shot, and then he would fight for the third. That's what we call it, which is the left handed dribble. And so you can put your guys wherever you want on this man left relative to what they're good at. Okay. And it's almost like a zone at the beginning because you can just put your defenders wherever you want them. You can put your big as the help defender on, which theoretically would be the left-hand side. And so you're going to have help with your biggest guy if, if that's the case. So there's there's obviously a, a, a little technique to it and and the, those types of things, but um, in the simplistic form that that we have time to kind of get here uh, in today, that's that's what it is. And also, let me also add to all of your uh, listeners before we get off, I'll give you my cell phone number, my email, all of those things. I'm I'm an open book as it gets. I'll be happy to talk to any listeners you know, via email, cell phone, whatever. So at the end, if any of this makes sense or you or doesn't make sense, or if you want further explanation, you can always contact me at any time. So music to my ears right there with zones and matching up and that that's right up my alley right there, coach. We are, we are kind of, we, we have tweaked it enough. So we'll, we're working on kind of man left zone almost. And so um, that we'll just start initially like in a zone concept where we just kind of are waiting for them with our hands in the air and kind of, you know, so they are calling out zone, zone, zone or whatever. So we're working to tweak and, uh, you know, some of my assistants are working on like a one, three, one left or a two, three left um, where we have a lot of these same principles, but we're, we're playing a zone. So, uh, you know, we are constantly trying to evolve this thing and like I said at the beginning, this is just how we do it. If you can get one or two things from this and then tweak it to your personnel and your league and what what will work for your team, I think that's that's what you want. So I really want to now kind of dig into uh, maybe the the playing at an uncomfortable pace, but in the half court, you know, what kind yeah. of things do you do to kind of encourage that fast pace? I know for my team. Uh, we have a one second rule um, and maybe what are some things you drill into the half court to make sure that pace, once you get into the half court stays continuous. Yep. I think so many coaches think pace means oh, I fast break a lot, but yeah, it does, yep. but it also is within the half court. 
Yeah. Well, first off, let me just preface this with this, and then I'll answer the question. Um, I think that half-court offense is the most overrated thing in, in basketball. I think teams are not in half-court offense hardly at all. I think um, that we're in transition. We want to be in transition about 80% of the time. So, and, and it's easy. People are like, well, there's no way you could do that. There's no way you could do that. Well, this is how we do it. Think, think of a game as 100 possessions just so we have easy math, okay? So I'm going to hold you to 40% shooting. That's relatively easy to do at the high school level. So that's already 60% of the possessions. I'm already in transition, okay? Then I'm going to turn you over 20 times, okay? That's relatively easy to do uh, against a lot of teams. Well, that's already 80% of the possessions that were in transition. So, and then on makes... We like to get at least one layup on um, opponent's make per quarter. So then you can add four more possessions that we were in transition even on your make. So theoretically, we want to be in transition at least 80% of the time. Now, we play a lot of teams that are so scared isn't really the right word, but they want to prepare for us so they get all five of their guys back. So they have all five of their guys waiting. So now comes your question. We like to keep the highway open. And by that, I mean, the lane is open. We don't have a rim runner. And, and coaches are like, there's no way you can play without a rim runner. There, no, we don't want somebody clogging that thing up. Obviously, if a guy is ahead of the ball and we can throw it ahead to him and he's in the middle of the lane or running the middle of the floor, then we will throw it to him. That rarely happens, rarely happens. And if it does happen, it's because the other team is so lazy and it doesn't matter. We're going to get that anyways. So we do not have a rim runner. We do not do that. Uh, we try to keep the highway open, which allows when we get into the half court, if all five guys are waiting for us, then we can flow into an action, we call it. And we just run actions off of whatever the person that's bringing it up decides to do with it. Okay, so... <clears throat> for example, and this is a simplistic example, let's say our point guard is bringing it up and he pitches it ahead to the two. There's automatically a ball screen from the trail four that happens. It's just automatic. And then we play off of the advantage, we call it. So we are just trying to secure advantage off of how fast we play. And then we play off of that. Okay. So I, I, People are like, there's no way, there's no, that's all we do, okay? So theoretically that happens. So let's give another example. Somebody will say, well, what if they're denying the pitch ahead? No problem. We can, the guard will take it as far as he can, or he will pitch it to the trail guy. And then we'll have a double gap with our guy already in the corner. And our trail guy can attack that advantage that he just got with the pitch, Okay, so we like to keep the highway open so that our ball handlers can get into the lane, get on two feet, and then play off of that. And so it's as simple as that. And once we get into the lane, you're really in trouble against us because now we're playing off advantage. So if I kick it and I've been to the lane, there's going to be a long closeout. Well, guess what that long closeout is? That's an advantage for us. And so we play off of that. And then we continue to play. So 
when I said at the beginning, it's really hard to scout us. It is really hard to scout us because you don't know what we're going to do. We're not running an offense. We're putting pressure on the rim. That's what we call it. We put pressure on the rim by getting to the lane and then we kick and then we play off advantage. And then we just keep doing that uh, until we gain advantage. Now, sometimes we're not very patient with it. Sometimes we try to gain advantage after one pass and, and we need two, three or four passes to gain a bigger advantage. But a lot of times we gain advantage right away because of the action we run or just something as simple as pitch ahead and the guard cuts through. We don't even need the screen then. Uh, we hit the trail and then there's a double stagger or something like that. So our kids just understand actions that we run off of transition and then we play. Certainly when the game really, really, really slows down like a dead ball or something like that, we'll either run an action or we can call a set as well. But our sets are usually double actions of some sort like Spain or Miami or something like that. And then once we do those, then we play off of the advantage that those create. And so, um, you know, again, it sounds simplistic and it really is, but there's a lot more to it than that. You, you would kind of have to come to our practice and see how it all kind of flows together and all of those things. We do a drill called transition progression every single day. And sometimes we do it for 30 or 40 minutes a day. And that's the only drill we do that, prepares us for what we're going to to see. So um, it sounds simplistic and it is, but it's really, really difficult because you're giving your kids freedom within the system to make decisions. But like I told you before, uh, uh, coach, like if I play you, the possessions are equal theoretically. But if I play you the next day, the game is completely different. The game will not go the same. The game will not be, you know, played out the same. It's completely different. So what I like to create in my practices is random basketball because that's what games are. Games are completely random. So like if a team knows we're running, you know, pitch ahead, high ball screen, which they all do, it doesn't matter because we're making reads off of that to play off of that. And so you can take that away and then we're just playing basketball. And so practices are a little bit random at, in our gym, just like games are random. And so that really strikes coaches um, kind of different, especially old school coaches. One that I give the players most of the control. And then number two, the randomness of our practices um, that I like to, to switch things up. I like practices to be completely random um because that's what games are so i'm our listeners can't see me smiling but they also know that i am not a sets person and my team has not run a set for the most same three years um but something i i want to hit on with you is i don't know about you but my teams because of the way we play see a ton of zone and it's more and more packed in or they show me a three-quarter press or uh, I have one coach that literally on free throw attempts doesn't put anybody in, pulls all five yeah. off and yes. sits them all back. So yes. what are things you do maybe as counters to teams that try to do those things to try yeah. as much as possible to get you out of those advantage trigger situations? 
Yeah. So first off, we talked to our guys about the best way to beat a zone is to beat it down the floor. And so that's easier said than done because we, we run into the same things that you run into because we play so similarly. Um, one thing, let me backtrack is one thing you will never hear our guards say, set it up, set it up. That is a phrase that if you ever hear in our gym, I should not be the head coach there anymore. <laughs> okay. So the, it's just one of my pet peeves because it also allows the defense to set up. So anyways, which is kind of getting to what you're talking about. What do you do against zones? Well, we have the, the, the number one thing we do is beat it down the floor. We try to, but that doesn't work all the time. Cause obviously you have dead balls. Obviously you have teams that are conditioned to get back on you. So the first thing we like to do is run the same actions as we run versus man. So that pitch ahead high ball screen, we do that anyway. And we just screen the zone and then we play off of that. Okay. And so we'll run some of the similar actions as we do against man. Okay. So that's, that's my first thing. And then number two, what we've been really successful with is double skip passes. So we have a rule. If you catch a skip pass, your first option is to shoot it. The second option is to skip it right back to where it came from. Because those teams that get back a lot, they're also the teams that run to the helpline a lot. <laughs> and then they overhelp or they overemphasize the helpline. So when you catch a skip pass, our guys are told, or at least drilled, your first option is to shoot it. Your second option is to throw it right back to the guy that just threw it to you. Okay? Because of the shifting of the zone. And then obviously... We have some pin down stuff and, and some other stuff that against zones, it's it's funny because against zones, I run, I do run some sets because I want them out of that. And so I, I run a couple sets that usually get the teams out of zones. Um, and if they don't, we'll just keep doing them. <laughs> and so I run a ton of, not a ton of sets, but we run way more sets versus zone than we do man um, because of the very thing that you're, uh, getting to but I will tell you this we won't run a zone set until probably mid-December uh, because I don't even if we play teams that have that play pr primarily zone because I don't want them so used to running a set to get them out of trouble if I'm doing that that's going to be like in the sectional final or like a, a conference game late in January so we don't start running sets man or zone until probably mid-December and we take some L's because of that but I don't want our kids with the crutch of running set after set after set after set and thinking that oh well they're in this so we have to do this no you your job as a player at least at Bolingbrook High School is to figure out what what we're doing and to play within the concepts that we've given you and so like against zones we go partner opposite a lot. So that's a concept we use against zone. So two of the guys are playing together. And when they catch the ball, their first look is obviously to shoot it. But then their looks are partner opposite. So they look to their partner first, who's playing hide and seek with the defense. These are all concepts we use against the zone. Playing hide and seek with the defense. And then you look opposite of where the ball came from you, uh, to you. So when we drill against zones, 
We just give our kids concepts to use and they have to play off of those. And so the partner opposite concept comes from our two guys who are typically what other teams would call a four and a five. They are partners. And if they get thrown the ball, they look to shoot it. Then they look partner opposite and we play. Okay. And then we play in flat triangles with the other three, meaning that you're in a triangle with in between your defender and the ball. And you're trying to make that triangle as long as possible to make the closeout as long as possible. And so we just give our kids concepts like that and then we play. And so obviously we're stopping them during this and saying, hey, what could you do better, et cetera, et cetera. And we're subbing them and letting them, you know, kind of figure it out as they go, and but but within the concepts. And so, you know, I, I had a newest, one of my varsity assistants last year was new and he came from a school that I won't mention, but, um, you know, he said, you know, you can't really understand this thing until you've been through it, until you you understand what what it really is. And there's no scouting it. There's no, no matter what you play. And so, um, you know, that's just what we tried to do, especially against the zone. Uh, but against man too, is play off of concepts instead of sets. Now, once it gets to mid-December or so, I'll start putting in some sets and some quick hitters versus zones to get teams out of there out of it so that we can play a little faster if, if that makes sense so all right let's go back to defense here you talked a little bit about on ball defense your closeouts things like that but i want to tweak it a little bit since you already talked about it to talk about adjusting your players to those different god you said you combine all these different techniques right you know when they go yeah. up they're playing they're playing you know you have your denial right you're denying that yeah. side those teams are usually forced into a checkpoint, right? No middle. Yep. You have your pack line, which has different things they're looking at. And now yep. on the other side, you got your 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 lock left where yep. players aren't really conditioned to say, you're telling me I yep. just let them blow by me and go left? You know? Yes. So how yes. do you kind of, maybe even from your younger kids up to yep. the varsity level, build those skill progressions to yep. kind of – that's a really really good question like one of the best questions that i've that i've gotten on a, on a pod or a clinic or or anything so here here's here's an example since our kids have been like in second grade they've been taught turn them turn them turn them turn them turn them as many times as you can no matter where they are on the floor so when we're in man left and a guy is decking it to the left we don't want him turned we don't want him to turn because if he turns back and goes to the right, we have no help there. So this is an example of what you're talking about. Um, and our kids, and we have very, in, in general, we have quick, fast kids at my school that can turn them, turn them, turn them, turn them, turn them. Okay. So how do we get rid of the that habit, so to speak, and and get them conditioned to all the things that you were talking about on the defense? Here's how we do it. We play short-sighted games and we play short-sighted games with different rules every day, depending on what we need to work on. So for example, I'll give you an extreme example. We'll play three on three and we don't want right-handed layups, right? Well, guess what a right-handed layup is worth if you get one? 10 points. Guess what we're playing to? 15, 
Okay. So if you get a right-handed layup, you're going to lose. Okay. My guys don't like to lose. Right. So because of that, they figure out a way to not give up right-handed layups, if that makes sense. Okay. So whatever we're having problems defending, that's what's worth the points in our short-sighted games, if that makes sense. So the example I gave you is the right-handed layups. Okay, but you could put any skill or any technique that you wanted towards that. So we might play a short sighted game of four on four where, you know, if we're having trouble defending pin downs on the right hand side, if you score on a pin down on the right hand side, that's worth 10 points. Okay, whereas a pin down on the left hand side isn't worth 10 points. That's worth like three because a pin down on the left side is acceptable. You see what I'm saying? So we adjust the rules of the short-sighted games to whatever we need to work on, if that makes sense. And, and it seems simplistic. And again, it is, but our kids don't want to lose. So they figure out ways to, to do that. And then obviously we give them the emphasis of the short-sighted game, like what we're working on. We tell them what it is. And so I'm not really big on technique. Like some guys are like, two hand closeouts and then drop the one or whatever it is. I, we don't, we don't do any of that. We tell our guys what we want the outcome to be. And then we let them figure out how that is. Some guys, you know, say on defensive slides, you shouldn't cross your feet. I don't care. I don't care how I, my kid defensive slides at all. As long as he keeps in front, like I'll tell him, you got to keep him in front. I don't care what his technique is on his defensive slide. I don't care if he can put a piece of wood in between his two heels, you know, or that his feet get too close together. Don't care about any of that. So the short-sighted games are how we take care of a lot of a lot of those habits. And then we put randomness in those short-sighted games as well. And, and then we go from there. So um, again, it seems simplistic, but when you do this stuff over and over, and then you drill it over and over, that's how we we get the results that that we need. All right, so I'm gonna follow. I'm just thinking out loud here. Um, mm -hmm. Do you do anything with your quadrants or your thirds? Right, you know. I mean, yeah. obviously, you could you could do that short sided game on the left, right? And you got to yeah. you got to keep it there and enforce it there. Maybe you have someone in the middle, obviously, because you don't want it to get back there. But is that is that kind of stuff you emphasize too, or you're just doing it in in general, or you kind well, of working well, on those sides within those skills? We'll do closeouts on each third of the floor because the closeouts are completely different depending on where you catch. But when we're playing short-sighted games, it's usually using the whole floor so that they have to get used to, you know, doing all of it, if that so makes sense. Switching back and forth. From yes. So because you can't, it, it, it's not, I don't want to say realistic, but it's, it's not real to just guard on one side of the floor. Right. And no, so, no doubt. you know, I had this debate with one of the coaches at my, like, Four-on-four four shell, I have no idea why teams do that. I don't understand why teams do four-on-four four shell because that never happens in a game, the shell situation, because then, then it brings up the, well, how are we going to help? How are we going to rotate on the four-on-four? Four? Well, guess what? You're never going to rotate four-on-four, four, ever, never. You're never going to do that. So why are you doing that? Why are you debating how you're going to rotate on the four-on-four? Four? The offense is for every time, to be honest. Yes, if there's you no want to play four on four, I get that. Cause 
it'll it makes you defend a larger space of the I understand playing four on four. I don't understand like why teams do four on four shell and then they go live with it and then they debate how they're gonna rotate. You're never doing that because you're gonna have a fifth player out there. And so once the rotations start, I I I so anyways, now I'm now I'm getting into things that are pet peeves of mine um in particular so do do i play four on four in the half court during my practice absolutely i do a ton of short-sighted games with that but guess what i don't care about the rotations when i'm doing the four on four okay because there's a fifth guy out there always a fifth guy so the whole you know whenever we're working on rotations guess what we have a fifth guy out there so we play five on five so um it seems simplistic, and I I get the argument. Well, if you can guard with four on the, I get all that. But when you start debating how you're going to rotate, you got to have a fifth player out there. And so that's just one of the things that I believe, and that I think, um, you know, that that we do. Um, so certainly we play four on four, but I never do four on four shell unless I'm talking about like the the positions that you need to be in the initial positions. And then we're not working on rotations. Then obviously when we play on four on four, we have to rotate, but then they have to figure it out. It's just random, just like it would be five on five. So um, anyways, that's for another whole podcast, I guess. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I do. I do think there's a, a level of, if you're not having your, your players in decision-making and you're just doing random skills uh, training, one of my big pet peeves is stationary ball handling. Um, I think it's it's just one of those things like we want to make sure that our skills are being built into what we're trying to teach, um, which is kind of you you had mentioned, you know, an interesting kind of incentivizing um, defensively with giving up a right handed layup being 10. So I'm just curious in the offensive end, what kind of things in, in practice are you kind of incentivizing or promoting um, to kind of have them lead into the shots you want them to take, the way you want yeah. them to play? How does it tie in? Yeah. So, so the exact opposite would be true on the offensive end, right? So if we're having problems making the extra, extra pass, for example, when we play our short-sighted games, we call it a click, click, boom, click, click, boom, shot, right? So pass, pass, shot. If we're not getting those and we're not spacing the floor with those, guess what a click, click, boom is worth when we play our short-sighted games? 10 points. So guess what our team's going to do more when we play short-sighted games? Click, click, boom. And you'll even say – so you'll hear guys like when 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 that's, that's the case. Like let's just say I, I'm going to give them 10 points for a click, click, boom. As soon as the guy catches it, you already hear guys on their team on the sideline, extra, make the extra they want 10 points so my point is they're going to figure out a way to win so that that they don't have the punishment of losing right and so we would just switch the exact scoring system around to work on whatever we want to see on offense so we call it I, I call it with my coaches like in the preseason meeting when we we score what we want to see happen so if you want to see it happen Make it worth more than two points, okay? Like a pitch ahead to a layup, five points, okay? So guess what we're going to see? Pitch ahead to layup. We're going to see that, okay? So whatever you want to see more of, give it more points. 
and then play the game to whatever point value you want. Another thing we do um, is we do that. We call it race car. I got it from Mike Neighbors, who's a dear friend of mine in, in Arkansas. Um, we put 30 seconds on the clock for each possession. So I have a manager just there. And you get the point value of the seconds that are left on the clock when you score. So if you pitch it ahead and score with 28 seconds left on the clock, that's 28 points. Oh, I'm stealing that. <clears throat> so if if you score with one second left on the 30 seconds, it's one point. Okay. Well, you'd be surprised how fast guys, now you got to play to 200 or you got to play to 300 or even 500. Sometimes we have to get, cause we get guys running out and then you'll have guys like, dude, we got to get back, dude, we got to get. So, and then within that same game you can score also what you want to see in the half court as well okay so so you can say to them okay we're gonna play race car or uh, or um clock down actually race car is a different drill I, I misnamed this one so we call it clock down so once you get into the half court if you get a click click boom i'll go back to my other example where you get a drive and then a kick and then an extra that is worth 15. Okay, so then you can still work on your half court stuff while you're doing the countdown game. All right. Race car is a totally different, different thing. I totally misnamed that because I like race car, too, which I can explain what that is later. Um, but so we do countdown. Then we also play since we don't have a shot clock. Thank you, IHSA. Once we get up 10, guess what we do? We do it the other way. We start it at one second and we count it up to 30. And you get the points when, so in other words, you have to hold it for 30 seconds, then you get 29 points. Okay. So that's how we work on if we're up 10, we work on our delay game. And it's not delay, we just get more points when we score further into the time, further into the possession. And so because we don't have a shot clock, once we get up 10, guess what we're doing? We're spreading the floor and you're going to have to come out and guard us. Welcome to the IHSA basketball. Okay. You got no chance unless we miss free throws. And now that's going to be even harder because now we get two free throws instead of just one. Okay. So the, the, the new rule thing, they think they're helping. The, no, you're helping us. You're helping us because now we get up even five or six. Guess what? We're, you're going to have to come out and guard. Okay. How, how great is that? And we saw some of that at the state tournament. This is another whole podcast as well but we saw some of that at state tournament uh last year Moline got up like eight they just started holding the ball yep. and they won because they have really good free throw shooters and now with the new free throw rule they're going to win by even more so the shot clock has got to come in but that's again that's for another podcast <laughs> well and I think it is it's it's essential for coaches out there before I turn over to Todd something we started to track and implement this summer um, was where we call them clapbacks. So basically anytime somebody shoots, we're tracking how many times we can get a score after that in six seconds, but are yes. just calling it clapbacks. So yep. that, but it promoted getting the ball out and let's go and demoralizing them. Hey, you're, you scored, but we just scored too. So congrats. So yes. I, I do think it's important to incentivize the, the things you want on offense. There's no question about that. And I show this clip up I, when I was doing zoom clinics, <laughs> I showed, this clip of we happen to be playing Sandberg and they know how fast we play. So they hit the first three of the game 
And then we took it out of bounds. Their bench was up going crazy. We took it out of bounds, threw one pass ahead and laid it up in the other end. And their entire bench went like this. Like the game was over at that point. It was three to two, but the game was done at that point because they knew that that's what we were going to continue to do. We don't care if you score. We're gone. We're down at the other end. But I like the term, the clap back. Um, I might have to steal that as well. So we, we, uh, we want one of those baskets per quarter, obviously. Uh, like I talked about before, but the clapback, that's a good name for it. All right. So I want to talk about your man left and how it translates into your scouting reports. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, to me, it simplifies a little bit. Right. Because you, you're you not really having to change. Obviously, yes, you have some specific things that teams do that you might have to talk about or something that you, you know, you played somebody twice already and it's giving you trouble. Or, or like you mentioned, pin downs, right? Whatever, whatever it may yep. be. But you know, how do you translate it into to your scouting reports, and what does those scouting reports look like with that? If you're if you're running man left, and that's your main defense, man to man defense, and you're doing it right, this is going to sound crazy. You don't really need any scouting because they're not going to be allowed to do any of that. Nothing, and that's why. Um, what what the other team likes to do most, almost 90, you just watch any high school game. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, the McDonald's All-American game or all the way down to like class A basketball in Wyoming, nothing against Wyoming, but you, you know what I'm saying? 90% of the possessions are entered to the right-hand side. 90% of specials no doubt. going to the right, at least initially. So it really blows up whatever they want to do. And so certainly once it gets to the left and so like if they want to enter it to the left great that's even better because now it's not coming back to the right and so it really makes scouting a lot easier because you don't have to you know go through other teams set after set after set now if they get to the set and you don't defend it right then you're going to be running around and you're going to give up layups Okay, so you got to be kind of tight in what you're doing. I've been through all this stuff that you're that you're bringing up, like, you know, we'll run man left and not do it correctly or kind of have a breakdown. And then we're just having to fix it. That's what we call it in our program is just fix it, which we do. Um, But it takes the scouting completely out of it. It completely doesn't matter if they want to run floppy or if they want to run, you know, Miami action or whatever they want to run. And so high ball screen, you know, Spain or whatever. So um, it really takes the scouting completely out of it, to be honest. (laughs) Um, And and you don't have to do really any scouting. Um, And so, again, that's simplistic. And man left isn't our only thing. So, you know, I know listeners like, yeah, you're telling me you do no scouting. That's not what I'm saying. But if you do man left, right, like a team calls a set at the end of the quarter and you go to man left, Guess what they're not running? That set. They're not running that. They're just not. Now, they might get a layup off something else if their team has been coached and random basketball and play and all of that stuff, but they're not going to run what they were told to run. So I want to hit on, uh, with my last kind of offensive question for the episode, I just kind of want to hit on how you're assessing your effectiveness, how you're assessing your efficiency. Um, Well, you know, what are the things you're looking for? Sometimes it's analytical, sometimes it's not. Um, But kind of how are you assessing your effectiveness offensively? Here's one thing we started doing, and this is 
really unconventional and it's very time consuming, at least at the beginning, but I'll, I'll give you the tricks of the trade of it here right now. One of the things we started doing was charting effort instead of outcomes. And let me give you an example on both sides of the floor. So for offense, for example, we call it win your race. In other words, coach, if I'm guarding you and you're guarding me, I beat you down the floor. That's winning my race. Okay. And so sometimes teams get all five back. So we kind of adjusted win your race to, you know, sprinting. Like, are you attempting to win your race every single time? Right. So here's what we do. Every possession in our first five games, our first five games of the year, we chart every possession and every player, did they win their race or not? Okay. So every possession has a one through five and kind of not by position, but anyway, you get it. Every player is labeled one through five. And then I have an assistant and he just puts a check next to the players that won won their race and the ones that didn't. Okay. And then we tell our guys that 90% of the time you need to win your race, 90% of the time. Okay. So for the first five games, I have my assistants actually chart that. And that's hard to do because you got to pause it, go back, chart every guy. I get it. Then we get some baseline data off of that. All right. Then this is, this is a secret. So I hope none of my players are watching this. We don't chart it after the first five games, but we act like we do. Okay. So we actually chart it for the first five or six games, depending on how much data that I want. And then I can say, okay, Todd, you won, you know, 82% of your races. That's not sufficient. Like you're not going to start next week because of this or whatever. So then our players think that we're charting that, but we're actually not because it's so time consuming. Right. So I'm not going to make my assistants do that all the way through. So by that time, everybody knows what's expected. So then everybody does it. And then if a kid jogs one, I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll say, Hey, we looked at the last three games and you only won your race 82% of the time. And I just made it up. I completely made it up. Okay. And so, but I'll tell that to our kid and then I'll say, you know, that's unacceptable. Watch this. Now this is only one time, but we saw you six other times you know, not do it, but I'll show them the one that we got on the tape. And so that's just how we do it. Um, So that's an offensive example. The, a defensive example is, well, I guess this is another, another example, whether you want to do it on offense or defense, we chart offensive rebounding, not if they got it, but if they attempted to go get it, if that makes sense. So our one and our two theoretically are back, but our three and our four and our five, we want them hitting the offensive glass. So same thing, same thing with the assistants. So I give another assistant, okay, you're charting offensive rebounds for the three, four, and five, every single shot. Did they go or didn't they go? Not if they got it or not, but if they gave effort to do it. Okay. And so, you know, that is what we've done that, so we don't really worry about effort so much. Um, but we started charting effort because it makes everybody give more effort, if that makes sense. So um, one of the things why we play so fast or how we do it is we're, we're charting that. So 
um, did they win their race? Okay. And then we, we've done this in the past. We don't do it all the time. We will grade shots. Okay. Like a nine is an uncontested layup. Okay. Uh, a seven is a shot that you would make, you know, 60% of the time ish, you know, a five is a contested jumper, um, with a guy's hand in your face. A three is a step back three guarded or something like that. And a one is like a half court heave at the end that you just had to do. So we, we came up with criteria and each year I, I make it a little bit different, but that was just theoretically of kind of a, about what we do. And then I'll say, Hey, was that a nine or what was that? And now you're going to have disagreements on what it was. Like he might think a nine is a step back three with a guy in his face. So um, that's a three to me. Um, and so we want to get gain shots where we have advantage. And so we've done that in the past as well. So, you know, we, we just emphasize what we want to see. And I know it sounds simplistic and we score what we want to see in our short-sighted games. And then we give reward for doing what we want to see usually by way of points. And so that's how we, you know, in, in the short term, get them to play really, really hard. And then when they're used to playing at that pace, they just do it. So like when we're working on our press breaker, for example, we have to, when the ball goes through, our guys are so quick at just getting it up and we just fly it up. When we're working on our press, we have to make the team take it out of the net, throw it to my assistant. He holds it for a two count, throws it back to them, and then they can start playing if that makes sense. So when I'm working on our press, even against our second unit, we can never even get set up in it fast enough and they're already gone. Okay. So that's how conditioned we are at playing fast. So um, it, it's just, you can't just do one or two of the things. It's all of it plays together. The man left plays into it. Mindset over skill set plays into it. How we drill plays into it. All of it. Um, the culture that we have on our team plays into it because if you don't have good culture, kids aren't going to play hard. They're not going to play fast. They're not going to play unselfish. So if, if that needs, so that's a big part of it, how my assistants and how I, uh, address the team is part of it. So I say this at the beginning of a, a lot of my clinics, everybody wants their kids to play really, really hard all the time. And they want them to go really, really hard, but it's, it's unrealistic to expect them to play really, really hard if they don't feel valued. And if they don't feel valued, they're not going to play hard. So until you start making them feel like they're valued, no matter what their role is, they're not going to go hard. And so you want uncharacteristic effort, but a lot of coaches don't make their kids feel uncharacteristically, uncharacteristically valued, if that makes sense. And so Everything that we talked about today plays together. It, it all plays together. And so you can't, um, at least at my place, you can't have one without the other. You, you need your kids to feel valued. You need to treat them right. And then they'll start to go hard. And then all the things we talked about X's and O's, then they'll start to produce off of that. All right, so I'm going to combine kind of the last two questions and make it overall defensive philosophy. Since you talked about, you know, not playing your man left all the time and using, 
you know, different things. Um, so I guess what are your, you know, some some of your adjustments, whether, you know, you're talking about full court pressure or or when you're looking to change it up. And then, yeah. you know, like action sets, obviously you play against a ton of great players. So yep. those guys that get on heaters and, you know, you got to make, yeah. make adjustments to it. Um, you know, some of those things that that that'll give your defense trouble. First, the first response I have to that is I go on feel a lot. I I just go and that that goes with what defense we're playing. That goes with how we're guarding. That goes with how we're playing on offense. That goes with what we need in practice. The longer I do this, the more I just go off of what I feel the team needs. And sometimes the team needs a day off. Or sometimes we just need to shoot for 30 minutes and go home. Sometimes we need to go for two and a half hours and it needs to be really, really hard. And so I just go off of how I feel. Getting back to your question, um, we do play against really, really good teams with really, really good players. So we want to take away what that player does best or what that player does most. And so even if now man left is kind of one of the things in our repertoire we don't run it exclusively like we did two or three years ago maybe four years ago we ran just man left and that was it um so now we have different things in our arsenal to take away other teams best players like we might play um help line and pack line with four guys and complete denial with the fifth guy and so um, we'll work on those things and we'll play short-sighted games with those things where if the man that we're trying to not let touch the ball, if he touches the rim with a shot, that's 10 points. So in other words, if he gets a shot off, it's 10 in our short-sighted game. So everyone is working to take away that player. It's the main responsibility of the guy that's, that's denying him, but it gets to your question of, well, what do you do to adjust? We, we are constantly making adjustments and tweaks depending on who we're playing. Um, you know, we'll, we'll rarely run the man left, just man left in its purest form, unless we think, you know, we can really take advantage of that team. Um, and so, you know, my assistants do a really, really good job of preparing our guys um, with what other te teams like to do. And then we, you know, we expose them to two or three of those things and we like to take those things away. And that's right up the, the man left alley anyways, because that's one of the things we take away. And so, you know, that's what we try to do on defense. And then on offense, we try to do the exact opposite. We try to get to the lane. We try to attack the rim. We try to put pressure on the rim. Then we play unselfishly and attack advantage. So um, we just do the exact opposite on offense but we try to do it with a pace um, that's really, really fast. So as we move into our last two segments, uh, the first one we call 30 second timeout. I, I don't think you're going to have a, I am, I could probably guess maybe one of the topics you're going to bring up, but um, <laughs> it's your opportunity to talk about you or your family or your program or something you want your listeners to know about or, um, ask Todd and I a question. Um, there's no referee in your 30 second timeout. So the floor is kind of yours, uh, for as long as you'd like. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. I know the last thing I want to, you know, seem like is a guy that should, everybody should do what we do. And that that's not the case at all. So let me start off with that. Secondly, if anybody ever wants to contact me via email or cell phone, um, 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give those out here right at the end, right before we, before we get off. Um, you know, I, my family's most important thing to me. I have a daughter that's in college. She's a freshman. So we just took her up to Carroll university. I have a son who's a sophomore who will be playing for me. So that's, that's exciting. Um, you know, but we all, we all have work to do. And so, you know, I don't, obviously I think we need a shot clock. I, I obviously I, I think it's important. I, I, don't understand how states like South Dakota and North Dakota can have a shot clock and Illinois doesn't. Um, I, I, I understand all that, but, uh, you know, I think we really need a shot clock. Um, that would be my number one thing. If I had to say something about the game that I would like to have changed and then advice I would give to parents and players is just clean out all the noise, all the social media, all the stuff, all the, uh, shrapnel that's around you, um, social media wise. And I would give that advice to coaches as well. You know, everybody wants to get clicks and everybody wants to get likes and just start doing the work and keep doing the work day after day after day and um, good things will happen. So I hope that wasn't too much of a rant. I didn't want this to get on the the Rob Roast wants a shot clock or, or something like that. So, um, you know, family is my number one thing. And obviously my basketball family is of huge importance as well. When I first got to Bolingbrook, um, the culture needed to be changed. And uh, once we, it took us three or four years to get it like that. But once we got that going, then everything else started to fall in place. And, uh, you know, we started to, to do some good things and it's not perfect. It, it never is. And like I tell our parents at our first parents meeting, we're going to lose some games. We probably shouldn't. I'm going to coach bad. We're going to play bad. That's just the way that it is. And if you're only looking for perfection, this is not the place to get it. And the number one thing I tell our players is if your relationship with me depends on if you play, how much you play or how well you play, then you are in the wrong place. I'm going to love you regardless. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. But if your relationship with me is dependent on any of those three things, then you're in the wrong room. And I really try to live off of that and really try to be respectful of that to our guys. And so, again, it's not perfect, but but we try to do the best we can. All right, Coach, last segment, quick hitters. Uh, just throw some questions at you, answer any way, any way you want. Uh, yep. Greatest influence on you as a coach could be a person, could be an experience, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think the greatest influence me uh, on me as a coach, I would mention three specific people. First is my dad, just because he's my dad and and he taught me how to treat people uh, with respect, uh, but still go after the things that you want. Secondly is my high school coach who passed away in 2016. I kind of referenced him earlier. Um, you know, he was a great friend of mine, a great mentor of mine, um, unfortunately passed away in a car accident in 2016. But great, great mentor. And then the third is Don Showalter, um, who was really close with my high school coach. And, you know, he's obviously won like 10 gold medals with USA basketball and all the things that he's done, but he's been a great mentor to me as well. All right. Favorite new drill, uh, or I'll even go with you with concept you've picked up in the last year. I would say my favorite thing to do is to play the short-sighted games. I think it's the most effective thing and score what you want to see. So if you're having trouble um, defending a pick and roll, say, then start 
the short-sighted game with a pick and roll. And if they score off the pick and roll, they get 10 points and they're going to win. So I, I would say score what you want to see out of the short-sighted games. That's, that's our favorite drill, but um, you know, we do transition progression every day. There's a lot of things that I really, really like um, and I can list three or four, but the short-sighted games uh, with scoring what you want to see is probably the, the number one. All right. Uh, give me your best place to eat in the brook. Best place to eat in the brook, man. That's a tough one. There's a lot of good I'm, ones. I live out here in Aurora, so I'm close enough. I, 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 that, that's a tough one. I, you know, my, my go-to, and this is not in the brook, is Chamagaucha, the, the steak place. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that's right. in Downers Grove. So I might just have to sneak it in a little bit. Close. It's 10, close. 10 minutes, 10 minutes north. It's really expensive. We can only go there on special <laughs> occasions. But that's my, that's, that's my favorite spot. All right. Favorite bus story uh, going down state. Favorite bus story going down state. Well, I will say it's funny because our, our, and people may or may not get a kick out of this. I don't know. Our district is always like, well, we don't have money for that. We don't have money for that. We don't have money for that. Well, we made it to state and they, I got an email like, Hey, come by central office so you can get your meal money and all the stuff that you need for a state. And all of a sudden we had like an unlimited supply of meal money, like where we were staying. I mean, it was interesting, outrageous. And so, you know, I give them props for that. Um, and then I was like, is this just like a, what are, what are we doing? Like, there was no like, okay, it's $5 per kid. It was just like, here you go, Have fun. Get whatever you need. It was very similar to that. And so um, it didn't really have anything to do with the bus, but I, I remember t- telling my, the first time we, we made it and we've made it three times. I was like, dude, and I didn't really know what the process was. I didn't right. you know, know any of it. And so, you know, that was shocking, but in a, in a really good way. So, I mean, we were getting our kids like Buffalo Wild Wings and Chick-fil-A and all that stuff. But then we're Olive Gar. I mean, it was just, it was crazy, <laughs> but there was no like $5 per kid. There was none of that. So th- that was great. And you're hoping now this time, do I have to pay, pay this money back? <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Uh, your, your favorite professional player of all time could be any sport, NBA, NFL, whatever, whatever well, it may be. I mean, I obviously have a, a bias toward our pro players that, uh, that I've coached. Um, so, you know, I don't want to hurt any of their feelings. So therefore I'm not going to say any of them. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say probably my favorite professional player, um, of all time is probably magic Johnson. You know, I grew up in, in the eighties and it was always bird magic and my best friend loved Larry bird. And so I don't know if I just liked magic because uh, there was the rivalry thing there or, or whatever, but, uh, you know, I, I, I would have to go with magic Johnson. All right. And for you, maybe in the next couple of years, what's a, what's a new goal for you as a coach? Man, I just want our guys to become better people. And I know people are like, really, we don't really do a lot of goals for our team. Like I don't say we need to win this many games or that many games. We just talk about stacking good days upon good days. And obviously I'm looking forward to the next three years even more because my son's going to be playing for me. So that's, that's going to be a a special thing. And so, you know, we, we always want to get better as a program and certainly I'd be lying, you know, we've, we've been to the final four three times and we haven't won it yet. So, you know, it would be great to one time to, 
to cut the nets down, uh, you know, in that, that last game, but a lot of things have to go right. And you, you got to get kind of lucky. You got to have a right group of guys and got to stay injury free and all of those things. But that would be, that would be the ultimate for sure. Well, coach, we, uh, we were on with you for quite a bit today, but Todd and I couldn't get enough. So we just kept firing questions. So we appreciate your time today. Uh, I know you're, you know, you're willing to share with others. So if you, before we close out, if you want to just share your information with others, how they can yep. get a hold of you. Uh, but thank you for jumping on today. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. I don't, I, I love talking basketball with, with anybody, uh, my cell phone and this, I, this is actually my cell phone. This is not some burner phone that I never look at. Um, my cell phone number is 630-965-9813. And my email, which is probably an even better way to get a hold of me, at least initially, is B-R-O-S-T-R-C at VVSD.org. So stands for Valley View School District.org. So my last name, B-R-O-S-T-R-C at VVSD.org. That's my school email. And uh, I try to get back to everybody within 24 hours. Sometimes I, sometimes I, I'm not able to make that happen because I get a ton of email requests and phone requests, but, uh, I'll do the best I can for sure. Thank you again, coach and listeners. Thank you for sticking with us through hundred episodes. We look forward to the next 100. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast in concert with the Illinois Basketball Coaches Association. Please remember to give us a five-star rating wherever you may listen. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout and subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast in partnership with the IBCA. Please be sure to rate us on whatever platform you are listening and give us a five-star rating. For more show content and updates, please follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout. As always, thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.